0: Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. I'm excited today to have Seth uh, Zarin out uh, here with me on the podcast. Seth and I have uh, met in the past and corresponded a little bit. Seth has a, uh, a sub-stack uh, that I uh, definitely recommend called uh, Build the Next Right Thing, and uh, he's in Providence, Rhode Island, which is actually, I think, one of the uh, sort of most underrated uh, smaller cities in the country. I've always really liked Providence, enjoyed it. So Seth, welcome to the podcast. I know we're going to have a lot of good things to talk about and we're going to talk some housing and some other stuff, but uh, glad, to, glad to have you on so we can do this.
1: Thanks, Kevin. It's nice to be here.
0: I uh, I, I think, you know, Seth, I want to kind of start by talking about you're an, another, another guy who has a really interesting path and background into becoming uh, into the development world, which is what you're doing now. Uh, but certainly not at all where you started, uh, and I wonder if you could kind of walk people through your professional background uh, and and then even like why you wanted to do a Substack in the first place, uh, as some of us silly people do to put thoughts out in the world.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I usually introduce myself when I meet people by saying. Um, that I'm a former climate scientist, recovering city planner, turned real estate developer. Uh, You should get a laugh on recovering. Uh, Much like people who have all sorts of addiction issues, uh, city planning is something that you uh, always kind of, in the back of your head, always kind of want to work on, but uh, can be really challenging. My path is, as you said, a little funny. Uh, I'm actually from California. I grew up in the San Francisco suburbs south of the city in Silicon Valley, basically. Mm -hmm. Uh, And by the time I graduated high school, it was quite clear that I would never be able to afford to live there. At that point, houses were selling for about a million dollars for a little ranch. Now it's about Mm three million dollars. Um, And so by the time I left for college, I sort of knew that the housing situation there had broken so much that it was really unlikely that I would be able to find a A good quality of life there for myself at that time. Uh, In college, I ended up studying geology and climate science. So I was a geology uh, major, geosciences major, and I uh, narrowly averted the PhD. (laughs) I dodged it, fortunately. And I found myself really becoming interested after college. I, I went and lived in South Korea for a year and I taught English there. And it was such a different experience than growing up in an American suburb. Or in a small town where I went to college. And it really got me thinking a lot. And when I came back to the US and I went and worked at a boarding school while I was figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, and I started to read about cities and urbanism and architecture. And I realized that oh actually at the time I thought I wanted to go to school and do architecture, but I was really intimidated by portfolio and drawing and I had I was a scientist. I mean, I could do data. I understood geology, but Um, so I was really intimidated by that. I ended up going to an environmental management program at Yale where I could kind of moonlight in law and architecture and business. Hmm. And so that was kind of my entree. And I discovered I really liked zoning at the time. Uh, and I like to say, like, I like board games and zoning is basically just the biggest board game imaginable. It's a huge map, bunch of colored spaces and a really long rule book, which was totally (laughs) my jam. And. So I was a zoning, big zoning nerd, I, I interned with the planning department, you know, in between the two years of graduate school, and then got a job as a zoning official after graduate school for Newton, Massachusetts, which is kind of that wealthy first ring suburb outside of Boston, where the doctors and professors go to have children.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I was there for about three years before I kind of realized this was not the place for me, I wanted to do stuff, I wanted to shake things up. And One of the dynamics you'll encounter when you find a a sort of a wealthy uh, sort of trophy suburb, right, is that people buy there because they like what it is. Right. Right. So the political dynamic in a place like Newton, like many wealthy suburbs around many cities in America, is people are buying a particular place and they want it to stay that way. That's what they bought. And so there's a real change aversion there, which was just a bad fit for someone in their 20s whose master's degree and wants to get stuff done. Yeah. And. I had also at the time had the opportunity to work with a bunch of developers and this was coming out of the financial crisis. So there wasn't a lot happening right away, but slowly, slowly things started to get back in gear. And after about three or four years there, I decided I was going to jump ship from the, from the planning side. And eventually found myself working in a development shop as a development manager, kind of coming in to do the permitting work, right? So I just basically switched sides. I was going to go do permitting for the developer moving complex projects through design review and, and master plan approval and stuff like that. And I did that for my sort of early apprenticeship for about three or four years uh, and got to the point where you know I got married. We thought about buying a house and realized Boston was also too expensive. So we started considering other places and Providence was nearby. We would visited. We had friends here. Uh, and at the time, certainly it was massively more affordable than the Boston Cambridge area. Mm-hmm. So we moved down here about eight, maybe nine years ago, about. And so I was working as a development manager, you know, for a a larger firm. And then when I came down here, I was still working remotely, but I connected with some local developers and eventually joined a local firm, Armory Management Company, uh, which is a a 35-year-old, almost 40-year-old partnership now uh, that has done historic rehab uh, Main Street revitalization, ground up, infill development, and came on board here, you know, also as a development manager and kind of worked my way up. Now I'm a partner and working on kind of the future of the firm and future of development in the Providence area. So that's kind of my, my origin story. It's one path. Uh, I haven't met a lot of other people who've come through the, the planner path um, into mm-hmm. development. I would say that I was one of those people, you probably remember this, Kevin, you know, whatever, eight, nine, 10 years ago at CNU, there was this whole conversation about why are you working for shitty developers, you know, to architects, planners, engineers, go be your own. And I took that very much to heart and was trying to find a way to do it. And I've kind of managed to find a way to do it. Come through that. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. I I mean, I I have met a few a few other folks who kind of started in the planning route and then ended up in development. But uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's not too many. I mean, one thing I'm curious about, Seth. So, like, I'm I'm a Midwesterner, so I have I don't have that experience of growing up someplace and then realizing like I'm never going to be able to come back. I mean, so I mean, a lot of Midwesterners like myself uh, leave uh, at some point, and, and then often we find our way back home. But it's like and there may, there's lots of reasons why people do their things, but there's never seems to be this like logistical issue that says, well, I'm just not going to be able to afford to come back where I grew up. What, what's that? And what's that like to at some point have this realization, the place you grew up in, which you probably have some really fond feelings and memories for that. You just, you weren't going to be able to make it back or you weren't going to be able to afford to make it back. That must be a strange feeling.
1: It is. And I will say it becomes a lot stranger when you have your own kids. Yeah, <laughs> which true. I have now. I have two young children. And we go back to California, you know, once, maybe twice a year, visit my parents who are still in the house I grew up in. Um, And, you know, that neighborhood that I grew up in, you know, hasn't built more than a couple net new homes in the last 50 years, right? Hmm. Homes get torn down and they get replaced by bigger homes. But There's no net additional homes but my parents raised three kids in that house who all have their own households my parents are still in that house so sort of mechanically if you have a neighborhood uh that doesn't add any homes you're essentially and but you but you have children those children have to leave right Uh, mechanically right um and if you then multiply that across an entire region well then they have to leave the whole region which is like why people have to leave california Mm -hmm. Um, and i so I have a very like complicated relationship with it it's like obviously it's my home. it has like a a smell and weather and just like the culture that is what I grew up with it's it's I have nostalgia for that, but I also go whenever I go back there i'm like, this place makes me crazy <laughs> because it's not like you couldn't build more buildings you know you couldn't it's not like the soil can't support more buildings right, right? there's no physical limitation really. It's the self-imposed limitation. And then when you go back, especially after the last 20 years or so, and you, you look, you know, here's a region in the world that is the current sort of nexus of tremendous wealth accumulation, right? The Bay Area. And what did we get for it? Right? We got kind of mediocre drive-it strip malls and, uh, the you know, single family houses that go for three and a half million dollars to five million dollars you know, at at similar times in the world, we got, you know, London, Paris, New York, Chicago, Shanghai, Tokyo, like, these metropolitan areas were built. And there's this tremendous physical capital that's created by economic growth. But in the Bay Area, it's, 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 so it's kind of depressing for me, I I feel like it's helpful to go back as a, as like a cautionary tale, you know, it's, it's a, it's a practice, you know, you have to, go to the meditation retreat and struggle. And that's a little bit like what it is for me. Um, So you would ask why I write. And so I'm a full-time developer. I run, you know, commercial development, residential development, run commercial leasing, uh, a lot of architecture design, permitting. You know, I would say, you know, there's a lot of different backgrounds one can bring into the development world and all of them come with different strengths. Uh, Being the planner background gives me a lot of facility with, permitting. And so zoning is an area where we're really effective, zoning, historic neighborhood relationships, all that kind of stuff. And then finding value in buildings that other people don't see because we look around at what other people are doing in other parts of the country and we're able to import those ideas and try things out. Um other people have different advantages that they bring. Right. The reason I write is <laughs> probably like you, I've got like some thoughts in my head that I have to get out. <laughs> and you know, development is a great practical, you know, craft practice, you know, and it's, I mentioned, I think earlier, apprenticeship, like there are a few schools that teach development, real estate development, kind of, mm-hmm. but mostly they teach what we think of in- institutional development. So right. if you want to go build a skyscraper, go to MIT or Columbia. Yeah.
0: MIT has got those great courses and, you know, everyone yeah. the- else. And,
1: and like, Totally fair. Like mm-hmm. that's a reasonable, that's a thing that makes sense in the world. But it's not going to help you, you know, renovate a triple decker or you know put up an ADU or renovate a main street building. Yeah. It's just not the skill set they're not teaching that. Yeah. Um, so it's an apprenticeship. I mean, it's still really an apprenticeship job. You have to go and you have to go through a lot of stuff uh, and struggle, and you see all the pain and suffering, and you go through the stress and. You start to learn stuff and, and it's one of those jobs. There's so much to learn that you, you know, here I am 40, a partner doing a bunch of development work and I'm learning stuff every day. Mm-hmm. Right. And we're all learning stuff every day. um, So it's, it's really satisfying in that way, but it's not necessarily an intellectual job. Right. I mean, thinking about stuff is important. Math is important. Those are all relevant things, but uh, it's not the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. And so I write because trying to figure out some stuff, right? Trying to figure out for myself, but then also how to explain things to other people. Um, Because one of the things I I say to people is that, and I, I learned this when I became a developer, is that like, as a developer, I had more in common with the blue collar tradespeople without a college degree in terms of my understanding of the built environment than I did with someone who had my equivalent class background, education, income level, like an attorney or something, right? they live in a house that they bought from someone else, right? They are a consumer of the built environment, but they know very little about how it gets built. They don't get under the hood. But conversely, like I, you know, the plumber and I under, you know, we're in it together. Now we have very different jobs. We might, you know, we're having a different experience of it, but we both are seeing this world. We're both participating in the making of stuff. And so we end up with this very different environment. And then Because of the way we've regulated the built environment, now there's this huge chasm between the people who build the cities and the people who consume the cities that are built for them Uh, because people don't build much for themselves or for their cousin or for their neighbor.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a I mean, that's a really interesting point. I like that, Seth. Um, And it sort of resonates with me, too. And you know, in my experiences in design and development. And you get some of that in architecture too. If you're the kind of an architect who you spend a lot of time uh, doing construction administration or on job sites, um, you, you really, I think, get a very different feel for that than if you're just kind of working in schematic design all the time. Um, but yeah, that art of creating things. Uh, And this is what I kind of often tell people about development. One of the things that just completely, like routinely frustrates me is this sort of parody of developers that's put out in the world. (laughs) It's like, you know, as the black hat evil people trying to, you know, ruin cities and and not this understanding that actually, and not that there aren't those people, there are some, you know, there are crappy people in every field, Um, but most developers are just simply in the act of creating things that other people are going to use. Like that's, that's, true. that's the whole and I, point.
1: I say that all the time as well. And I would add to that, that one of the things that's interesting about development, right? Coming from planning. So like real estate or uh, city planning, right? Graduate degrees, conferences, magazines, there's even a licensure, right? You get your AICP, mm-hmm. go to the conference, get the magazine. It's a profession. Real estate development isn't really a profession. Right. You get $2 million and buy a CVS, you're a real estate developer. You know, there you go. Yeah. You put it on your business card, it's your real estate developer. So there's no professional boundaries, you know, for good and for ill, right? I mean, sometimes I think the boundaries around some of these professions are actually really harmful, but you kind of know what you're going to get, right? You know what the professional culture is and you kind of know how it changes and you know the institutions. Development really doesn't have any of that. Uh, even, you know, the Urban Land Institute, ULI, which is a major player, still like, compared to like the APA and planning is, is, is minuscule. Yeah. Um, And so like part of the challenges is that, um, so that's, that's one piece of it. It's just not really a profession. The other piece of it is that one of the things that's happened in the 20th century is we blew up our development culture, right? We had an ecosystem of building places, you know, that was the design, the construction, the operations, the leasing, the materials, you know, the trades, there was a sort of ecosystem of it. And we kind of blew it up, right? We, we radically transformed it over a short period of decades. And so there's no continuity, right? So there's, so when you people do development, there's, there's not a sense of there's any kind of private constraint or private rules. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it feels even less like there's a profession, right? And there's not like a coherent culture. We're going to build more of that or we're going to evolve, you know, incrementally from a coherent culture of building. We're just going to build whatever you end up. That's where you end up with the like two story building with a mansard. That's like with the weird landscaping, it's just this weird chimera because the developer and to a large extent, the architects have no grounding. There's, there's no like lineage they're working from. There's no continuity. They're just throwing stuff at the wall. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think one of the other aspects is that in development, so many of the players in the non-institutional world are entrepreneurs, you know, at their heart of hearts, they're entrepreneurs, and it's hard to gather uh, together a whole group of entrepreneurs who are in some sense in competition with each other all the time. Yeah. and, and feel our, Like a common sense of purpose.
1: And, and they're often grinding for their own private yeah. gain, which, uh-huh. you know, in many parts of the United States is sort of seen as a, is not good, right? Profit is yeah. bad to a lot of people. And I think that's unfortunate because while certainly like people can do bad things and like, that's not good, you know, making a profit from doing good things is is good. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good sign. It means you get to do more of it. Right. We say, you know, we have to make a profit because that's what we, that's the, the seed corn for the next project. Right. Yeah. If we ate all of our seed corn, we would have no next project. Right. Uh, and if we run out of seed corn, we all starve. Right. So you you don't get to lose money very many times in real estate before you're out of the game. Yeah. Well, and, and,
0: and nobody bemoans like the local cafe or the barbershop or whomever from making a profit. Like we, we all, we all want them to make a profit and succeed. But for some reason, you know, the local developer, uh, in a business that's far riskier and more expensive, it's like yeah. we completely beat them up about the idea that they, they actually need to make money to keep going.
1: Yeah. And I think part of it is that there is par- – part of this change in building culture, right, is that there is where there is more of – or a greater percentage of the built – of the nuke development is sort of seen as done by outsiders yeah. for short-term gain and then they're gone. Right you know, you'll, you've talked to other folks in the incremental development world between the, the farmer and the hunter. Right? Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. It's we're, we're 90%, 95% hunters now, mm-hmm. you know, instead of 25% hunters. And, and that just really changes the relationship. So we're a local firm, I work in the neighborhoods in which we live. We work down the block from our projects, if we do a bad job, I have to look at it every day, people know who I am, they're gonna yell at me, like, <laughs> there's a level of responsibility. The profits are most are many of the profits are being reinvested again locally into the next project or into donations to local organizations. So it gets it, you know, not it's not just as a a matter of credibility, but as a matter of like the actual development culture and ecosystem. It's just a better way of life. Yeah, Um, I think one of the things that's key, though, about the developer image, right, is that there was this real period and formative period for for you and for me, like in the 60s, 70s, 80s of the real estate developer is always the villain, Mm -hmm. right? In every Hallmark movie Mm -hmm, and, you know, real estate developers are always the bad guys and it's a really easy trope, right? It's, it, it's change for, you know, we're going to change something that's here now that's good for profit, you know, and then they're going to be gone. Um, We don't have any valorous examples of the real estate developer in popular culture. Yeah. And I think if I had a magic wand, I would like, I would have some great popular sitcom about, you know, a real estate developer, a young Latino builder in LA doing interesting stuff and growing over the course of seasons and be hilarious because there's so much tragic comedy in development. <laughs> um, so if anyone out there wants to pitch a show to, the, to Hollywood, that's, well, that's I think I you've
0: pitch. got your next uh, screenwriting gig. Uh, oh my I God. No, that's not me. <laughs> So, um, uh, so, so give give us an example uh, of a project that you're involved with now, something you're working on, uh, to get yeah, so, to get people sent to what you're doing.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll give two quick examples. So, we just finished a rehabilitation of an historic structure, four story masonry building uh, that was con- converted back to residential. Right, it had been turned into actually a nursing home. Uh, it was first as a hospital, then a nursing home in the 20th century. It was originally built as four brick row houses. And so we brought that back to residential. That just finished last summer, 12 units. Um, and that project was really great. It's a really beautiful building. Um, we are a little bit countercultural uh, in sometimes what we do. So we built, in part, following the logic of the building, because we were doing a federal historic tax credit project. We didn't want to torture the building. Hmm. So the units are large. We have you know 1,500 square foot, two bedroom, two bath apartments, which is on current construction, like weird. Yeah. It's just, they're really big. And they're expensive as a consequence of being big but what we're finding is there are people who will nice stuff Mm -hmm. and they're willing to pay more for an apartment Uh, and it's still cheap compared to new york or boston it's expensive in providence but you know there are people who will who will pay that and right now we're working on the second phase of that project so that's probably 26 unit building we're going to try to get some three-bedroom apartments in that which is you know again sort of philosophically we think it's important that there are places where families could live in multifamily housing.
0: Yeah,
1: um, It's on a park, you know, it's a beautiful location. And then the project we just started is we acquired a 50,000 square foot mill building uh, in a kind of old industrial area uh, of, of the city that has, it's one of those things where the previous owner kind of ran out of money and attention. So some things got done, but not other things. Mm-hmm. So we're finishing that up. And that project, we are actually going to complete sort of the previous owner's plan, which is to create modestly priced commercial spaces. So we, in our portfolio, about 50-50 residential and commercial, which isn't necessarily by strategy. It's just sort of where we've ended up. Uh, but I think on the margin, we're a little bit more comfortable with commercial than the typical developer or landlord in our area So we, because we run so much of it. And it's full. I mean, we're 95, 97% full in commercial across 300 and something thousand square feet um and that's because we price to rent it you know and we take a good job caring for it uh we follow the advice of making things smaller if they don't rent right so if you make them smaller then you make the rent smaller which means more people can rent it um and there's turnover but you have a reusable unit just like an apartment people move right into it uh, run their business out of that so it's been good i mean you know who knows things could always change but we see a lot of value in you know, one of the things that happened in American cities as disinvestment and white flight took place was not only did the people leave, but also did all the businesses. So it's like where's your dentist? Where's your doctor's office? Where's your accountant? Where's your graphic designer? Or, you know, where's your retail shops? You know, your salons, your banks, your restaurants, your bars. And restaurants and bars usually come first, but that's only a piece of the ecosystem. You know, it's a whole, you know, you need gyms and and retail stores and yoga studios. And I know that sounds kind of trite, but it's sort of a, a a curating kind of orientation, so this building part of the strategy is to create a building that is safe and modestly priced and not pristine so that it's a building in which people can do work you know so it's artists fabricators who have real businesses but need an, a space to operate their real business. you know mm-hmm. it's not just a crazy building you know spray painting the walls, but you know a reasonable building not too expensive, not too fancy mm-hmm. uh, but safe, you know sprinklers and a roof that doesn't leak so. yeah.
0: That's kind of our current project. That's a great model. It reminds me a little bit of one of Monty Anderson's uh, projects in South Dallas, uh, sort of a similar deal, large former industrial building and essentially a minimal, very minimal tenant finish, but incredibly flexible. And if it's priced right, it, it, you know, in his case, it leased up, you know, very quickly. Um, That's, that's a cool model. Yeah. Um, So I, I didn't really have any, a whole lot of personal experience with Providence Probably until uh, the CNU was uh, hosted there in what was that um, mid two thousands or so, um, which was the best Congress up to that point, and the best one until we hosted one in Savannah, of course. Uh, and um, uh, and anyway, I was I was I was really impressed by Providence. I thought it was um, just an incredibly uh, interesting city, very walkable. Uh, really cool architecture everywhere, nice downtown uh, just seemed like it had a ton of assets uh, in in especially in that region and like you said, you know v- priced very differently than boston or or new york and so i'm curious about like the last decade or so what 's going on in providence how's the how's the market there uh, how how are things changing and uh, as a more of like a third tier city. Uh, what do you see that's different compared to some of the you know, larger markets?
1: Well, I think that the, the big story of the last 10 years is that we're no longer kind of isolated on our own. And I don't know if that's mostly a combination of remote work or if it also has something to do with just how expensive Boston and New York have become and other cities. And Providence has seen some of the highest year over year property appreciation in the country. So you're right, it's a nice place to live, you know and then if you're paying you know thirty five hundred dollars a month for you know a kind of crappy two bedroom apartment in Somerville, you move to Providence and you can get a really nice apartment for thirty five hundred dollars or you can save a bunch of money and so that it, it it's not so diff- dissimilar for me right We moved down here because it was cheaper yeah and so that adds demand it adds demand in the upper end of the market. so a big part of what's happening in Providence, Rhode Island is is that there's a relatively small number, but of people with a fair amount of resources, income and, and, and capital moving here. And the state chronically, you know, because it's sort of been tucked away for a long time, uh, it has very little home construction, right? We are the last, second to last, third to last in per capita home construction every year for the last few decades. And so, the intersection of those two things is causing a really crazy housing spike hmm. and a lot of angst. Um, and, and for myself, this is one of the places where like my own experience growing up in the Bay Area and then having my own kids has really hit home because, you know, I know in 20 years I'm still going to need a house to live in. And my two kids are probably each going to want their own house to live in or apartment, right? Mm-hmm. So I either got to build them one, they're going to buy yours, or they got to leave. It's math. Right, and so it's put the question of housing shortage, kind of on the sharp end of the stick for me personally. Right, is you know, am I going to be able to see my grandchildren more than once or twice a year, kind of thing? <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's a big deal, right? Uh, and I don't people don't quite appreciate it yet. I feel a little bit like a harbinger of doom sometimes, <laughs> uh, because in Rhode Island, the the feeling is, is like this could never happen here, right? Because we're kind of this backwater, sort of economically. Hasn't done well since deindustrialization. You know, there's some bright spots, but it's a little tough and nice quality of life, but not too expensive. And that whole script kind of worked for a generation or two, but it's not relevant anymore, unfortunately. And then that that psychic cultural transformation uh, is going to be really hard.
0: So, coming from the background that you came from, how do you uh, how do you compare like the uh, the development or the uh, sort of the regulatory um, apparatus in Rhode Island and in Providence compared oh, to boy. places you've worked or pros and cons and uh, what what's going on there?
1: Yeah, when I go to CNU and I say I'm from New England, they're like, how do you work there? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Uh, yeah, we're, we're a more heavily regulated region. Um, I think that in some ways that's beneficial to someone like me, right? If you're good at navigating the rules, then it's actually to your advantage right. um, to work in a regulated market because there's, you know, I'm not competing on how cheaply I can put up drywall. I'm competing on who can come up with the most creative use of land and get through the regs. Right. Um, it's, uh, you know, Providence itself has a mod, what I would call like a modern zoning ordinance. <laughs> it's got a lot of, you know, there's things I would quibble with. There's things I would change, but it's basically a functioning ordinance that like does the right things more or less. Right. And which is great. We mostly work in Providence. I'd say the rest of the state, like most of the rest of New England, it's it's still like 1955. Yeah. And there's no resources, no political impetus to like really fix that yet. Um, I've I've helped one of my responses is I helped found last year a group called Neighbors Welcome Rhode Island, which is a sort of strong towns meets YIMBY type organization that we're still kind of launching you we a website now hmm. we're working on legislation state level legislation um, and also trying to support local organizing in these towns um, so it's a uh, it's it's you know very similar to the markets I'm used to it's a New England place everyone's in everyone else's business the place has been inhabited buildings on it for for you know hundreds of years I think one thing that's always interesting about about New England though, you know, compared to the national conversation is the missing middle is not missing here. Yeah, Like our cities are made out of triple deckers, mm-hmm. twos, threes, fours, sixes, all over the place. Our problem is we don't know what comes next. So a city like Providence right now, the only plan is, and this is true, Boston and these places, it, you know, you can, sure you can build on the vacant lots and there's a bunch of vacant lots and you can build on those for a while. There's going to be some bad commercial buildings. You can build on those for a while. There's some old industrial land. You're going to build on that for, some, for a while. But in a different way, but similar to the regions where, you know, everything's zoned single family and it's built out single family, you can't add anything to the bulk of the neighborhoods, which are zoned for two and three family homes, because there's already two and three family homes there. Mm-hmm. And what we don't have, and I don't, I don't think anyone has an answer to this, is how does one, how do you create a building typology and a business model and a regulatory framework, building code, zoning code, etc., to add density to those neighborhoods. Um, to to take a three-family neighborhood and and bring it to the next increment, whatever that is, because I don't I don't think we have a model for that. Other than to go to a full like five over one big apartment building, but the land assemblage there is really prohibitive. So mm-hmm. what's the next thing that's denser than three families on five thousand square foot lots, but isn't a big commercial building? And I don't think we have an answer for that yet. I mean as an urbanist architecture development community. And we certainly don't have a, a regulatory framework that will allow us to build it either. So that's like an R&D project. That's yeah. sort of a back burner curiosity of mine.
0: Does the regulatory frame framework allow you to build the triple deckers in place?
1: Uh, under zoning? Yeah, kind of. Under building code? No, yeah. right? Because the triple deckers are, are commercial code. Yeah. So, you need sprinklers, so you can't build them. The cost difference, you just build a big two family instead yeah. of building a three family. It's mm-hmm. a much better strategy. So, one of the things that Neighbors Welcome is proposing this legislative cycle to follow on North Carolina's example and Memphis's example is to move three, four, five, six family dwellings into the residential code.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, with no sprinklers, a single stair. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll keep the two hour rating, just add more drywall. Okay, fine. But, uh, you know, that's a, a one of the things we're proposing along with a single stair reform for the small apartment buildings. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a chicken and the egg, right? You, there's no point coming up with the prototype and you can't build it. But then no one wants to reform the building code because there's no prototype that makes sense that people are excited about. So it's really kind of trapped. Um, and so, you know, that's an interesting challenge that we struggle with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, said, I mean, it's an interesting thing to think about what that next increment, too would be beyond the freestanding, you know, triple deckers and stuff like that. Because you know, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is you start to think about uh, neighborhoods more like you would see in New York or Boston, certain certain parts of those cities that went to like five and six story walk up um, buildings that buildings that touch. Yeah, that's that are, the big thing. Yeah, uh, and they're not really townhouses would wouldn't call them townhouses but they might be like a five-story walk-up like you'd see you know yeah. on the upper east or upper east side or upper west side or something like that
1: yeah there's there's two there's two tiers i think there is a version that's more about lot subdivision right mm-hmm. so we have decently sized lots and you know three families are big but you might be able to get some more houses on them or bigger versions um and then I certainly moving to the part where you have party wall construction and the buildings that touch, you know, you recover a bunch of lost area to to thin side yards that no one can use. Um, That tier is really interesting because you could probably keep them as owner occupant, right? They'd be small, you know, two, three, four families, but on smaller piece of land, you know, buildings that touch, whatever. The next tier above that, you know, which is like single stair elevator, five, six stories, you know, Twenty apartments. That's a commercial loan. It's a commercial operator, mm-hmm. and you know one of the, the virtues of the triple decker, right, is that you have a distributed ownership, right? So that it's not just, you know, we have tons of landlords in the state, yeah. you know, because everyone I own a triple decker, I live in, right? Everybody owns, you know, a two-family, a three-family, grandma's two-family, right? It's just mm-hmm. it, there's so many opportunities for people to be small landlords for good and for ill. Mostly, yeah. for, I think for good, but yeah. there are, there are some limitations to it. Um, you know, so when I, I look around at international examples, right. At, you know, so for example, I, I teach real estate development on the side, cause I really care about bringing more people into this profession not profession, trade, craft, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And, uh, when I had some European students, uh, uh, last fall and I brought them to Providence, uh, on a field trip, took them around my neighborhood, which is, you know, to native Rhode Islanders, like the hood, it's like the inner city. Ooh, scary. And they're like, this is a very nice suburb, right? Because to them, a bunch of detached two and three family dwellings with a few vacant lots in between them or parking lots. This is suburban density, right? And they're wrong. And they're not wrong. They're right. Um, You know, historically, like that, that was a transition. You'd go from town, right? Which is mostly detached, small multifamily buildings to herb to the city. The buildings start to touch because the frontage is really valuable and you wouldn't just leave it for like, you know, five foot grass strips and whatever. Um, and so, you know, it still ends up being quite car focused because, you know, everything is sort of far apart and, you know, you got to fill in the, the empty gaps. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah. I mean, a lot of that it reminds me a little bit of what Jane Jacobs used to talk about uh, in Death and Life of Great American Cities is sort of like the gray zones. Yeah, the gray density. Yeah, the yeah. in-between density. Uh, and what
1: I would say is what happened to our, my neighborhood to a certain extent, and I think this is true of a lot of American, you know, urban neighborhoods, you know sort of pre-auto suburbanization is that what happened, there was so much, there was a lot of removal, even where there wasn't wholesale urban renewal, you know, mercantile buildings were taken down and replaced with a gas station, right? right? Or a parking mm-hmm. lot. And the church is, you know, brought down, you know, there's little holes in the fabric. And, and when I look at the neighborhood as like someone who thinks about cities and can see, can you know, learns to look in that way, is it kind of looks like someone who's slightly sick. Right. Their skin's a little pale, a little drawn, you know, there's a little yellow in their eyes. That's what it kind of feels like. And so it's about kind of filling it back up again. I think we've kind of in a lot of cases, we kind of dipped down into the gray zone and we're trying to get back into it. Because once we get kind of out of that gray zone, adding density is good. Right. It it brings more services, more people, which is can support more businesses. And there's this positive feedback that strengthens the neighborhood, makes it better. Mm -hmm. But in the gray zone, it's like, well, is more people gonna make it worse? Like where what are we? Um it's a nice callback because most people don't make it past parks in in uh death and life. It's <laughs> <Just> too bad. <laughs> I tell them all the good bits are at the
0: end. Oh, uh, there's a there's a there's many bit good bits. Um but yeah, I think there's there's a there's an interesting aspect of American cities in particular there where you have and I think about this a lot. We we wrestle with this so much in, in my part of town in Kansas City where there is a, there is sort of, a sort of urban density that actually works pretty well where everybody pretty much drives still. Right. If you know what I mean? Like it. Yep. the parking is easy. Uh, and, um, you know, you, it, it's just not that, uh, it's not really urban, but it's not really suburban. And, and, yeah. um, and I think there was a, generation of people who reoccupied a lot of urban places like that in the 70s and 80s in particular who love it for that they love the fact that they're like in the city but it's like parking was easy
1: yep now the problem we have that here too yeah the the,
0: the problem is like historically that was a complete um non-starter you know the those neighborhoods had far more people were far more urban uh and it was and by today's standards, it would have been incredibly difficult to have a car and drive it around everywhere and park well, it. Well,
1: people people forget that like you could have the same number of housing units and yeah. have fewer people because household yeah. size is so much smaller today. Yeah. So yeah. the street is relatively empty, right, yeah. compared to when Grandma was living here, you know, 80 years ago. Yeah. Um,
0: and and there now far with the, fewer people around, and now with the prevalence of like one car per adult, yeah, you know, everywhere, the the challenge of trying to upgrade those neighborhoods to become more like their historical uh, predecessors, yeah. it, it does create a lot of conflict because then all of a sudden we are wrestling with the, it's really the car issue. Uh, in yeah. You're, you're moving
1: from one equilibrium to another equilibrium. Yeah. And and that's always really painful because it's yeah. going to reduce quality along the trip. Even if you end up in a better place on the other side.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, one of the things <clears throat> I find really helpful or really valuable, and I have I admired your work about this is the business improvement district and I don't know, whatever we call that micro form of government. Mm -hmm. And we're involved in helping create one on a main street near us that has suffered from a tremendous amount of urban renewal and institutional concentration. And we're trying to figure out how to improve that. And one of the things that I've learned from doing that is that the city, even with a pretty strong planning department, Providence has a good planning department, lots of good people, plenty of staff. It's not low capacity, but they got a big city to run, right? Yeah. And they can't know it. Super deeply everywhere all the time. Right. right. And here, you know, I'm involved because we own a bunch of property nearby and I've been working in the area for years. And so I get to know all the other owners and I get to know the, the nonprofits and the businesses and residents. And, you know, and we're, but I'm working on like eight square blocks, <laughs> if that. <laughs> right. And I know that really well. I, I could talk about this block versus this block and this crosswalk and that curb and this parking lot and that, that tenant and, you know, at that micro level. And, It just seems to me that that's got to be the future of a lot of this governance stuff, because to get out of that bad equilibrium it's going to require a bunch of really careful, tactical, hands on changes to infrastructure, to private development, public, you know, all those pieces. And when I look at the whole city, I'm like, there's not enough coordination, right? There's not enough attention. There's too many things going on, too many fires to fight. It's at that micro level that I could kind of organize enough people, run the small planning exercise, coordinate the private development, coordinate the public investment, and, and keep on top of everybody. But it's only, you know, eight square blocks, right, right. in a big city. So how yeah. does that work?
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's uh, something we've wrestled with a lot, and we obviously do a bunch of it here. But I, I'm a big believer in, you know, this place management at that scale. Uh, and I, I think one of the issues that we've seen over and over again is, you know, my city is even much bigger. It's like 320 square miles uh, geographically. It's insanely large, uh, half a million people uh, in the city limits. Uh, so like relatively low density for that large of a city. But um, – the ability of staff to actually manage all that and know what's going on, it's, it's its impossible. It's literally well, impossible.
1: I've been city staff and I remember how right. insane it was. I mean, yeah. you don't get out of the building because you're too busy answering emails. Right. You know, this is like you, you fight with the engineers or whoever about an intersection. It's like, have, have you ever stood in the intersection for an hour? Yeah. Because I have, right? Because I'm there all the time. But you can't run the city, you know, not yeah. getting out into the field and seeing the mucky bits, right?
0: Yeah. There's and that's a, like – There's a huge right. mismatch in, in how we manage cities and – their ability to change and, and solve, just solve problems, solve basic problems.
1: Well, so one of my questions is, is that in part because like the way we teach kind of all the pieces of city building and management is kind of like, and it feels like they're individually busted and then the system is busted. So like mm-hmm. public administration, civil engineering, architecture, planning, yeah. you know, development, all, you know, whatever that there's a whole package of different professional schools that you could go to that would teach you these different skills. Mm-hmm. But none of them talk to each other. And so when they're graduates, I remember being a planner and then talking to the civil engineer and Newton being like, we're from different planets,
0: man. <laughs> like
1: the words I'm saying, you don't understand. The words you're saying, I don't understand. Yeah. Like, and no one's in charge. So we're just kind of like, because every department, one of the things that happens in cities, right, is every department is co-equal under the, under a mayor or city manager, uh-huh. manager or something. So like planning department can't tell DPW what to do. They're the same level. Right. You know, and so we're just kind of butt heads. But planning is in a particularly bad situation because they don't have any shovels or trucks or much free cash or anything else. They don't get to do much. Their only power is persuasion.
0: And it's the first jobs that are cut whenever there's a recession, too. So, But, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's the whole uh, industry is very siloed. Uh, And and this has kind of been the classic battle of the new urbanism from the beginning was really the push – uh from from our side was to create generalists that you know people who could pull everything together and our charrette process was designed to uh you know bring all those people together and problem solve at the same time and that actually worked really well and it does work really well when you're able to facilitate that the challenge you have in a lot of city governments that i've seen is that uh they're they're just like you said they're all vertically uh, di- you know, are all differentiated vertically and, and it's all siloed yeah. and it's, and there's not a ton of incentive for the different departments to understand each other and work together unless, unless you have a particularly strong executive who forces that to happen.
1: Yeah. That's really the game, right? It's like, yeah. does your executive get it and care and willing right. to spend the time on it? You've said something really interesting in the past on, on other versions of this podcast, which is that, I don't know if I'll we'll get it exactly right, but we spend like 50% of the time on design, 40% on policy, and 10% on implementation, and we should be like a third, a third, a third. Yeah. Here's the thing. I feel like the charrette process is really great, but then the charrette leaves. Mm-hmm. Right. New urbanists don't have, as far as I can tell, much of an answer of how you actually run the city. There's yeah. no proposal on how to reorganize the departments of the city government. There's no proposal yeah. on charter reform for cities or... You know, uh, there's a whole universe of, you know, what should the education for a city manager be? Yeah. Right. We have have an idea about what planning should do differently, you know, and so there's bits and pieces, strong towns, urban three, talk a little bit about the finance side. We're just starting to think about it. When you open that door, you realize, oh my gosh, where are the new urbanist police chiefs? Where are the new urbanist fire chiefs, right? The controllers, the tax assessors, there's this huge apparatus of public entities that are out there. Yeah. And I guess part of the reason why the place management is so cool is that you're, you get to like actually just be a little micro government. And instead of having to silo off every little bit of things, you're a taxing entity. You can also go hire people to put out flowers. You can also write regulations. Yeah. You know, you're like, you're a whole thing. Yeah. Um, and, and so likewise, so like, I feel like the CNU universe has not yet really contended with like the mucky bits of administering. Managing the city.
0: Yeah, I think that's totally, I think that's totally fair. And, you know, I got a lot of that thinking from Liz plater Who And so the way she broke it down was design, policy, and management. That's the, the three legs of the stool. Most of the people who came to the New Urbanism originally and were most passionate were designers. So okay. they had a very heavy emphasis on design. There were also a lot of policy wonks. So you got that policy piece. But yeah, very few people from the uh, world of understanding how to actually manage uh, cities, and we had, you know, we've had a lot of interaction and you know, bring people to the table and conferences and all. But I still think very little understanding in that world of, of how things work.
1: Well, and you go, I think, to the International Downtown Association, mm-hmm. right? The yeah. IDA. Mm-hmm. How is it that the IDA and CNU are still like not connected at all, as far mm-hmm. as I could tell? Right from the outside, it just it's like. The stuff we're this doing is, a good is so, question. <laughs> so connected, right? And so, this, I guess, is a, a plea to the CNU folks and a plea to the IDA folks like, let's get together, guys. Yeah. Because, like, CNU can bring a whole bunch of the design and policy ideas, but you're right. We need managers. And, manager, man, Strong Town sometimes talks about how uh, maintenance is not sexy, right? Right. It's easier to get people to design a new road than just fix the damn road you got. <laughs> yeah. um, but that's the problem, right? If no one is interested and we have no way of making management or administration Better, like you'll just keep doing new projects, and then as soon as you leave, they'll just fall apart, right? Because no one's yeah. going to run them when you go.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And uh, so, hopefully, we can make that happen. I would, you know, have talked with a few people about this that you know we need to find a way to link up. I mean, there's always been a linkage there, but it's it's just uh, it's not nearly as tight and as strong as I think it could be. Uh, I'm amazed when I go to the IDA conference just how few. Uh, new urbanist consultants even bother to attend, which is yeah, shocking to me. Seems
1: like a huge uh, missed opportunity on it, both sides.
0: Enormous. Um, but uh, yes, I think there's an in, one of the, uh, I think, ill effects of the last 30 or 40 years of uh, there's been a lot of education that's pushed really smart, uh, ambitious young people into the policy world uh, instead of you know, emphasizing that how important, like really good management is. Mm -hmm. Uh, First of all, I would say design also, I mean, and problem solving with projects generally is incredibly important. Um, My bias is doing projects is more important than policy, but I know there's a role for both, but management, God, if you don't have good ongoing management uh, of a place, just like any business, if a business doesn't have good ongoing management, forget it, you're toast. And and a city, if it doesn't have it, is going to suffer tremendously. Uh, So, you know, you go ahead, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to say, like, I I feel like in my head, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And and like when I went to school, I went to an environmental management program, Hmm. quote unquote management, right? It was supposed to train professional people to manage environmental organizations, work in government, work at the Forest Service, work for nonprofits, work in for profits, doing environmental stuff. Were there any classes on management stuff, right? Managing people, managing budgets, communications. No, it was all science, which is great. Fine. Like I need to know some stuff about ecology or water management or whatever. But like, how are we a professional school? You know, we have to go out in the world and run organizations which have budgets and staff and HR and communications and and negotiation. And, you know, you can go to the business school and learn some of that. And a lot lot of people did. But you got to ask yourself, like, well, what is what are we doing here?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, man, I had six years of architecture school and there wasn't one business course that was required the whole time.
1: I I mean, I see that. And and the planning people, you know, maybe it's gotten better. But when I was going through it, I took a negotiations class at the business school, which was the most useful class for being a planner. Negotiations. Most planners, we don't need people with physical planning backgrounds. I mean, you need someone who can do some physical planning. Mostly you need some social workers because local government is like a family therapy. (laughs) They have fights going back 20 years with their neighbor about whatever and who's yelling at who. And it's like, we need just some people to get people to talk to each other. Yeah. It's, it's not about technical analysis. No one ever voted for my zoning amendment because I like had a great analysis. No, it's relationships. Yeah. So, you know, I look at this as like, and I know there's been efforts around this at CNU, but I think we need to really get serious about building new educational institutions. I don't know that we can do it inside i mean we've tried it you know at miami we've tried it at mm-hmm. notre dame and there's been some successes but it's just not enough right 30 years later you know this just it hasn't really changed anything in yeah. terms of what we're training so we have another whole generation raised up in the old way of doing business and we're surprised when we get the same results
0: well one of the things that even mystifies me somebody who's gone to a lot of architecture schools to do student crits and everything else is like there's this there's a whole group that have come through in the last, I would say 15 years that don't even know anything now about the early new urbanism because that was like so long ago and it's just not taught. So um, it's wild to me. It's like that has gone down the memory hole. Um, So I, I, I talk about that a lot with people that I know just to try to keep some of those things going. And make sure people have a memory of what actually happened, uh, and what I
1: I think is so striking is I don't think it's actually that much money like, or that would be needed to build some of these institutions. So if anyone out there is listening and wants to write checks, fantastic. But like, you know, you could get a lot done for not a lot of money building these new institutions. I really do think that, um, and the scale of impact on society could be really, could be really huge. Um,
0: Seth, I want to switch gears and do one more topic and oh, before okay. we run out of time. I want to hit on this piece that you wrote about Yimbies and new urbanists and strong towns Yeah. Uh, and sort of the differences or perceived differences, you know, amongst the groups. I wonder if you could sort of set the table and talk a little bit about what, what where you were going uh, with that one. It's a long Important. piece for anybody who wants to read it, but it's, it's, yeah, really good.
1: it's on my, uh, my sub stack, build the next right thing, which is I have small children. So we watch a lot of Disney movies. That's do the next right thing, which is a song from Frozen 2, um, but related to incrementalism, well. right? You don't have to know the final answer. You just, when, you, when you're you confused, you just do the next right thing. You know, you kind of work your way through it, solve mm-hmm. the problem incrementally, pragmatically. It's a very American way to work. It's good. Let's build the next right thing. And it's a part because like getting to utopia is not like, you're not going to take one jump to utopia. We got to like work in the world we're in. So th- this piece came out actually, um, ironically, I started writing this <laughs> in the emergency room with my child in the middle of the night. Cause when you have little children, sometimes they eat like stuff and you end up in the emergency room in the middle of the night. So yeah. I'm like, I'm like starting to jot down some notes and the notes were really stimulated by uh, another guy, Steve Muzon, who's been on your show, I think mm-hmm. who, you know, is active on Twitter and occasionally, regularly gets in fights with sort of the very online Yimby crowd.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And then there was an exchange, you know, about a piece that Steve wrote and some other people responded. And, you know, a lot of people that I'm considered, I I like, or I appreciate their work. I mean, I appreciate Steve's work. I assign his book on, on, uh, on the original green. Mm -hmm. I appreciate Nolan Gray's work. I assign his, his stuff. So, but I was really struck by this continuing like fight in this case between the CNU and, and the yimbis And in my analysis, I mean, you can go read the piece, but I'll give you the, sh- the really short version. It's basically that, and, and, I, and, I, and since I'm from California, I'm very sympathetic to the YIMBY argument, right? I, right? I feel it in my bones, right? I can never return to the soil I was raised on because of the failure that has come before us. So in the YIMBY world, it's, it's all about supply. We got to build a bunch of homes, right? And that's the overriding value and virtue and goal, right? You see it celebrated. We're going to build so many Mahomer homes. And the New Urbanist orientation, which is really importantly different for a few reasons. First of all, it was started in the 80s and 90s when there wasn't a housing crisis. So the DNA is not built around a housing crisis. It was built around building crappy places, right? Go read, you know, uh, Suburbanation, right? It's about building bad stuff reconsler mm-hmm. you know that's that's the the dna it's also mostly working in the south you know in the midwest to a certain extent where there hasn't been a supply crunch you know cuz they're building stuff right it's building sprawl we can build better sprawl worse sprawl but stuff's getting built and so you know a lot of that is about quality how do we build good places and so what's what's so frustrating about i think to both sides about the embc and you debate is that Often we agree. Often building density and building quality are the same. So we, we're on the same team. But sometimes they're not. And the worst fight is with your ally who betrays you, right? <laughs> your enemies, yeah, fuck that guy. He's terrible, right? You know, that's easy. But my friend, I thought you were with me, but now we're not. Ugh. And so that's what keeps happening, right? The, the CNU folks are like, you know, that might be a little bit too much density. Aren't you worried about the blank walls? Aren't you worried about X, Y, and Z? And, then, and, the, and the YIMBYs are like, are you kidding, man? Like, we're all homeless, like, unless we build this building. We don't have time for your cute little nonsense. You know, your ADUs is too slow, whatever. And so that's, that's on sort of goals. And the people are different, right? The CNU, architects first, developers, planners. The YIMBY movement really comes out of activists, uh, political advocates, regular people, software engineers who are not professional built environment people, uh, lawyers, right? It's a policy-oriented movement, economists, right? That's the core, that's their their intellectual DNA is, you know, economists at George Mason, whereas the CNU it's it's an a few architects at Miami. That's really different DNA, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the CNU has for whatever reason, not really, it's done some behind the scenes politics, you know, policy change, right? There's been really important behind the scenes policy change, very not visible to normal people. But it's never been interested in mass mobilization, you know, votes and persuading elected officials. It's not their jam. The Yimby movement is a political advocacy movement, right? So they're, they're trying to like win votes and get lost. So the, the Yimby folks have gotten more bills passed that does a bunch of CNU ideas, right? The missing middle, ADUs, all the stuff that CNU came up with like 20, 30 years ago is being mandated by bills passed by YIMBYs. So they're like, CNU guys, we're doing the thing. Why are you yelling at us? Right? But the YIMBYs don't always appreciate that the CNU has rebuilt so much of the DNA of 20th century planning. So like uh, Complete Streets (laughs) was was like a CNU invention. People don't realize that anymore because it's now so mainstream. Um, and so there's this sort of tension where people don't see the benefits the others have provided because they're kind of operating in different silos. So that's, I think, this sort of core tension. And then I added this the, the Strong Towns because Strong Towns sometimes finds itself fighting with both of them and often aligned. Right? Often we're all the same team, right? I consider myself a YIMBY. I run a YIMBY organization. I also am a Strong Towns founding member and I've been at CU a lot. Um, but they're not they're subtly different, right? And the, C, the, the Strong Towns thing that puts them at odds with some of these groups is that Strongtown's core idea is that we need to re-engage bottom-up feedback, right? That the system is too uh, top-down, too tightly wound, too fixed, too set. So we build these places that are built to a finished state. We can't ever change them. We have tables that are not responsive to content. So we just we're just locked up. We can't get anything done and the strong towns idea is well we need the systems to be responsive right if housing prices go up we should build if they don't go up we shouldn't build you know we need to make the streets context sensitive and so on the one hand we're like all for getting rid of parking requirements and upzoning stuff so the imbys are like great but then sometimes we're like well that might be too much upzoning here's some reasons why and the imbys are like wait i thought you were pro density i thought you were pro development we're like yes but right uh the strong towns people would worry that the imbys in 1950 would have been the suburban sprawl advocates, right? They would have said, we need the houses now, damn the consequences. We're not going to worry about fiscal insolvency in 50 years. We're just going to build the houses now. You know, that's, so that's the towns sort of tension with the YMB yeah. movement is the top down, the sort of, you know, and this, and this is a result of, you know, your movement being led by political advocates and attorneys and economists, right? It's, there's the concern about that kind of top down policy orientation, uh, the sort of single metrics, let's get it done. And then I think sometimes there's also, there's also debate with, with the CNU around um, things trying to be too precious. You know, there is a tension within the CNU movement between sort of the messy side and the sort of all buttoned up side. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so that, I think there's just interesting tension there. I mean, I, I, what, what do you make of the debate between the Yimbys and the CNU?
0: Well, I think when the Yimbys first came on the scene 10 or 15 years ago, um, I remember kind of urging some of our colleagues to engage. And say what's like we need to we need to bring these people into the fold. These are our allies, uh, and um, also there's a I, I think one of the other differences that that um, is hard to overlook is that there's a generational difference. Mm-hmm. CNU people um, are probably like my age and older, mm-hmm. <laughs> primarily. Uh, CNU is trying to change that. And they they want to change that. They really want to appeal to younger generations, but. The dominant voices are uh, definitely, you know, Gen Xers and boomers uh, for the most part. And the YIMBY movement is a, you know, millennial-led um, movement for the most part. And I think there's, so there's there's a difference there that also we have to kind of unpack. But, um, so I kind of felt like CNU should have been a little more proactive to really bring the YIMBY folks into the fold and help them understand everything that we've been trying to do for 30 years or more uh and then build an alliance, but that that not has that has not really happened. Uh and now there there is kind of a tension there. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and they have their own conference. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's it
1: happening next week or something, right? Yeah. Um
0: were you at the session I did in uh Charlotte with uh, the the sort of Yimby debate or whatever we called it. I don't think I made that one. Sorry it was, you'll have to it was actually well yeah it was part of the CNU session, not, not Strong Towns. So, yeah. Um and uh, I got thrown into it at the last second because they couldn't find somebody to, to debate the, uh, Laura, who's the, the, uh, Yimby action head from San Francisco. Oh, nice. And, uh, I was like, sure, I'll debate her, whatever. You know, I don't, I don't know what we have to agree or disagree about, but throw me in the room and we'll do it. And it, it, it did tease out to me some differences. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I think you have a, you fairly characterized a lot of it. I, I think from, if I were to, if I were to steel man, the CNU position, um, it would be that, um, there's no point in just building lots of stuff. If it's garbage, we've been down that road before. And if we're just building stuff to build stuff a generation or two from now, we're going to find, we regret all of it and it's not going to have a future. Um, because we did that, especially in the post-war era. Uh, We built an awful lot of, you know, we had an incredible housing demand in the post-war era that we needed to deal with. We did have a much more flexible regulatory structure at that time, but we built lots of suburban sprawl that has not aged well, and we built a lot of urban renewal, uh, a lot of which has been torn down uh, in the years since because it was so awful and it was terrible for human beings. Uh, And so I under... you know my own inclination is to frankly be much more laissez faire and 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 uh that we should be able to just you know by and large people should be able to build what they want to build and and I don't get as caught up in in probably some of those specifics as as others in this union world do but I do have a lot of empathy for the fact that we actually should all care about building really quality places right. that we're gonna that we're gonna want to keep around for a hundred years.
1: And, and I think part of the the distinction too that I think I have to explain to people is like if you got rid of the zoning tomorrow, you wouldn't start building what, what we built in the nineteen teens. No, 20s. no, because we, we don't have that building culture. That's why I come right. back to the building culture. It's the whole ecosystem yep. of attitudes, assumptions, and practices. Yeah, doesn't exist today. Yeah. So I I tend to look at it as sort of it's like a it's like there's scar tissue right Yeah. and you need physical therapy right it's it's hurt it's kind of healed but it's healed wonky yeah now we need to go through a process of kind of exercises and stretching and strengthening and repairing and it's going to take a while yeah but eventually we'll restore function and it won't yeah. be quite the same but it'll be better yeah and that's like at a cultural level what we kind of need to do or or the, cyna- the-,
0: the cynical way it's it's methadone so you know, we're
1: <laughs> I like to do better than methadone. I mean, that <laughs> methadone is design regulations. The form yes. form-based codes are, are methadone, right? Yes. They're like, yeah, they don't. I mean, but at the same time, to the extent that they actually could teach architects and developers how to build not shitty buildings. Yeah. Well, okay. That could, be, that could make sense. It's an education program. Yeah. Um, if it works.
0: And, and it's funny because it, it, and I always find it funny when the form-based codes come under attack and I, I've got my own issues. I've talked about it before, but, you know, certainly when I was doing a lot of form-based codes, um, back in the day, we basically pitched them as, uh, we're doing these as a method of deregulation, um, mm-hmm. that we're creating a uh, type of ordinance that is going to allow for a whole lot more development than your current ordinance does. Uh, and which is true. And that's how most of them work out. Now they've also got their own problems and they, they've had a lot of issues with being able to scale. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I think that's, that's one of the routes that's kind of one of the flashpoints. Um, so anyway, I just, I think, I think the whole thing is interesting. I like the way you, you handled it and, and talked about it. And uh, I I look forward to more, hopefully some coming together. I, one of the challenges is that the YIMBY movement is ascendant. Uh, the CNU is aging out and uh, a lot of questions about what future it has. So I hope they're, I hope the CNU folks who care will kind of wake up to that and try to engage
1: mm. more and help
0: shape um, yeah. the changes that are coming.
1: I, I share that fear. And and one of the things that I noticed, though, and like one of the reasons why I really hope CNU finds a way to kind of pass the torch is it's the only conference where everybody comes together yeah. across the built environment. Mm-hmm. Right. The architect architects come, engineers, planners, developers, you know, public administrators, uh, transportation folks like they yeah. all can come to this conference that actually touches all of their things. If a CNU conference and community goes away, we're all going back to our silos and there's gonna be no cross fertilization. I think we'll all be much poorer as a society
0: for Yeah, it. no doubt. No doubt. Seth that actually seems like a great place to wrap it. Yeah. So Thanks, I, Kevin. I appreciate it. This has been this has been really great. Remind people where they can find you.
1: Oh, uh uh build the next right thing. You'll find it on Substack with Google or whatever.
0: And then you're on are you you're on uh Twitter? Oh, I'm as well?
1: on Twitter, yes. Uh it's Seth.zaren. It's very yeah easy to find.
0: All right. Good. Good. Well, Hey, uh, good luck with everything in Providence and, uh, and, uh, hopefully we'll uh, see each other at some point in person. So
1: yeah, we'll hope to see you at CNU this year.
0: Yeah. I plan to be there. All right. All right. Take care Kevin. Have a good day. You too. See you. Bye. Bye.